Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Father, would you now meet us here as we sit before your word and in your presence? Would you use your word by your spirit to open our eyes, to see things that we do not see, to long for things that you lay before us? Do this, we pray, for our good and your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the, the hymn that we just sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, is actually the, the title for the series that we begin today. It's a hymn. It's a hymn of Advent, and we'll see that as we go. I'm going to refer to it once or twice, but consider those words as we walk into this season together. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Martin Luther was once asked, <clears throat> which are the best psalms? And you might imagine the surprise on the questioner's face when Martin Luther said, well, the Pauline psalms. The surprise that Paul never wrote any of the 150 psalms that the questioner was referring to. And he went on to say, <clears throat> the Pauline psalms like Psalm 32, like Psalm 51, and Psalm 130, because they come to the very heart of the Christian faith. I think you're going to see that as we go, why Martin Luther <clears throat> looked at this psalm that's before us today and say it gets to the very heart of the Christian faith, though an Old Testament chapter it's before us today is the very heart of the Christian faith. It was a song of ascents. You noted that perhaps as we began this. Those were the songs that were sung by the people of God on the way to Jerusalem to participate in the annual festivals uh, and the temple. This was one of the songs sung along the way. So everyone would have known this. They would have known it by heart. The ancient church identified this as one of seven penitential psalms, and you can hear that as you read through this. You can hear the cry for deliverance, and you can hear the confession and the penitence sort of wrapped up in, in this psalm, one of seven that we find. Well, for us today, it's an Advent psalm. 
It's an Advent psalm because it's a psalm that both pleads for mercy, you'll see that, but it also encourages God's people to wait on that mercy. And that's what we do in Advent. We learn from a people here in Psalm 130 who waited for God to break through, to break into the world and to come with salvation. And we sit here today and we will leave here today waiting. Not on for God to come to bring salvation, but for God to come in Christ to fulfill and to finish the redemption that is yours, the redemption that began with a cross and a resurrection and an ascension. And we will learn something about waiting today, and we can learn from theirs. As they anticipated the first advent, we can learn something about what it is, looks like to anticipate the second. And I want to get at it like this. <clears throat> I just want to try to answer three questions with the time that we have. How do we do this? What is the posture of our waiting? Why do we do this? What are the reasons that we wait? And then what happens when we do? What is the result? The posture, the reasons, and the result. You know, waiting of, on any kind is just hard. Whether that's test results, lab results, a job interview, or maybe a child waiting for Christmas morning. Waiting is just hard. And in the world in which we live, where we don't wait very long for anything, it seems, we get pretty frustrated quickly at the drive-through if it's not fast enough. We don't know how to wait. Waiting is about timing. Maybe that goes without saying, but waiting is on timing. What time things occur, not why certain things occur. That's another sermon for another day. This is about the timing of it all. And I'm going to suggest that maybe of all the kinds of waitings that are hard to do, it may be that waiting on God's timing is about the hardest of all. And if you've ever waited for God to come through for you, you're already convinced of that. Waiting on God's timing. That was the dilemma for Israel. It was the dilemma for the church. It's, it's our dilemma today in, in a lot of ways. Waiting on God's timing. You know, if you, if you have to wait very long for God to come through, you begin to wonder if he can. Is he, is he really capable? Is God the God that we worship, the God that we gather around? Can he, will he come through? You begin to question perhaps either his ability to do so or his desire. Does God really love me if my waiting takes this long? And you can hear, can't you, the why, the why God underneath all of that? <clears throat> How long, oh God, is a, is, a, is a recurring theme in the Psalms. How long? But if you wait long enough, <clears throat> it's not his love and his power you begin to question. It may even be his existence. And some of you have been there. And it may be that some of you are there. What is this waiting all about? 
Let me see if I can define it before we go much further. Waiting on God is being prepared to patiently look toward God for his guidance and accepting the timing that he proposes and intends. Waiting on God, if in that case, can lead to an atmosphere or a posture of expectation and confidence. But it's only when we learn how to wait. And that's what's before us. How do we do that? I want to give you two words that the text shows us here. Two elements of waiting. There are others, but there's two in this text, I think. And the first one is intensity. The waiting that's pictured here that is before us, that we're called to do, is, is eager, eager and intense. You know, I've, I've never been a track star. I never even tried. I did, uh, I did um, as little of that as I could along the way. <clears throat> and, I, and I don't know this, but I've been told that among all of the races that, that are out there <clears throat> in track and field, they're all hard in their own ways. The sprint, obviously, the mile or the 26 miles, those are hard for different reasons. But I've been told that maybe the hardest of all, and if you've run track, you can affirm this or correct me later, but among all the races that are out there, it may be that the hardest one to do is the 440. The 440 is meters, right? But it's, it's a race that begins when the gun goes off, and it's a sprint that doesn't end until you cross the line. It's not 100 yards. It's 440 meters. There's an intensity with that that just doesn't let up. And that's a picture of the intensity that this psalm points us to. Did you see the word watchman? It's in there a couple times, right? That's not because they need to fill out some lines. That's a, that's a Hebrew way of taking the highlighter and saying, hey, this is, this is big. Waiting as the watchman for the morning. Waiting for the watch, as the watchman for the morning. In the Old Testament, there were the watches. There were three watches of the night. There was the, the, the first watch, the middle watch, and then the morning watch. And those were three, four-hour blocks of time. By the time you get to the New Testament, it seems that they, they adjusted that. They, they made, made it shorter, and they added one. So you had four, three-hour watches in the New Testament. But the watchman, <clears throat> whether it was Old or New Testament or us today, uh, the watchmen were the eyes and the ears of the city. The watchman's duty was to be on the lookout, an intensified lookout, a focus that you could not lose, on the horizon, watching and listening for anything. For anything that might pose a threat, for anything that might not be expected, for anything that might turn out to be good, but you didn't know until it got close enough, the watchman was the eyes and the ears of the city. And everything was at risk if the watchman dozed off. So they did what they needed to do to stay alert, and they, and they would have somebody keeping the other one alert. And the watch would, would be for three hours, or in the Old Testament, in this case, four hours of intense watching and anticipating, noticing anything that there was to notice, 
because life was at stake. Welfare was at stake. Everything was at stake. That was the watchman. More than the watchman for the morning, we are to wait. There's an eagerness. There's a focus. There's, a, there's, there's an intensity like the 440 race that doesn't let up until someone taps you on the shoulders and says, you're relieved. And then it began again. The watchman for the morning. That's the kind of intensity that is to mark our waiting upon the Lord. He says, hear my cry, O Lord. Listen to my prayer. Let your ears be attentive. It's, it's focused. It's directed. It's it's intense. There's nothing superficial about it. The watchman knew that the morning would come and it would provide, provide relief for the burdensome task, but they must still wait for that relief. They had to wait until the shoulder tap came. And we, friends, are to wait until Christ returns with that kind of intensity. So I've got a question for you and me. What does our waiting on Christ's second advent look like? I'm going to guess that for most of us who, who are not new to the, the New Testament or not new to the faith, have this sense that there is a second coming, there is an advent to come that is out there somewhere. And meanwhile, we get on and we're occupied and our waiting takes on something like disinterest at times. Or, a, or a, this settled notion that one day God will show up. And until then, we go about our work. We go about our life. We go about the things that we do. And we probably watch a little more TV than we should. You know. There are things that occupy us that are good in and of themselves until they supplant the kind of anticipation and the eagerness that awaits. I spoke recently with someone who had lost a family member. Lost a family member suddenly and unexpectedly and tragically and... And the response for that person is, Christ can't come soon enough. And we have something to learn from that. How do we live with eager anticipation for the rest of what is ours in Christ? So there's an intensity. There's also a hope. This how are we to wait? What is the posture of our waiting? It's with intense hope. Let me, let me read to you what Eugene Peterson says about that kind of intense hope. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It's not fatalistic resignation. It means going about, it means going about our assigned tasks, living our lives in this world, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom on our or our pain. It means a confident, 
alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith and the willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. Waiting and anticipating, putting, putting imagination of Christ coming through the door into this world in the harness of faith, believing and trusting in his goodness and his timing. So that's the posture of waiting. It's intense. It's with hope. We see that here. We also see the reasons why we wait. And here's two more words. The, the reasons that we wait are our condition and, our, and an admission. First, the condition. He, 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 the psalmist comes out and he says, I'm coming to you out of the depths. I'm over my head, or as Eugene Peterson put this in his paraphrase of Psalm 130, the bottom has fallen out of my life. The image is actually a, a water scene being overwhelmed by the, by the waves in the depths of the ocean is really the picture here. In the depths, I'm overwhelmed by things. And, I'm over, and it's there is, my, there is my plea. It comes to you, O Lord. It's out of the depths that I cry to you. There's an overwhelming sense of need. A drowning man sees the whole of his life passing before his eyes. And in the midst of the congregation, that's what's happening to this man. I'm getting the big picture of the depth of my need. And as I wait, the reason that I wait is because, Lord, if you were to count and to keep in mind all of my iniquities, who could stand? I have an inability. I can't fix this and I can't stand in your presence. There's things about my life that I can't change. Do you know that? <laughs> of course you do. With me, aren't there things about our lives that we can't change? Habits, patterns, tendencies. There's a brokenness to our lives that we cannot change. Maybe initially it was the depths of misery. <clears throat> to which opposition, hostility, and hurt have driven this psalmist. But with the sudden realization of a more serious dilemma in his life, there are things that he cannot change. So there's a condition. Unable to do anything about my sin. But there's also an admission. The admission is that we cannot stand. Lord, if you were to keep account of those records, who could stand? Psalm 15, you might recall, reads, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. How are you doing with that? Blameless. The things that mark my life and yours, their thought, words, and deeds that fall in the category of impurities. And think there, when you hear that word, think about um, the gap. Something that's impure is mixed. It's mixed with the good things that we might do and the other things that mark us. It's impure. There's a, that's the impurity. An impure piece of metal is, is blended. An impiece, impure, uh, it's got, with, with where impurities, they have to be boiled out, burnt out. There are impurities in my life and yours. And those leave us in a dilemma. The reason that we wait is because there's things that we cannot change. 
But what is the result of our waiting? Hear, this, hear these good words, friends, because the psalm climbs. It climbs out of the depths of misery over sin to confession of sin, to hope, and then assurance. Here's how he puts it. O O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Uh, Two more words. There's an inward aspect here and there's an upward. Inwardly, what happens when we see the fullness of who God is and what he's doing, what, what we in, the work that goes on inside of us is that we begin to understand that there is a word of forgiveness that we hear. That's where this begins, verse 4. But with you, there is real forgiveness. Literally, it's the forgiveness. With you, there is the forgiveness, maybe the real thing, the genuine article, or maybe the only forgiveness. It is only your word pronounced over me. And that is where this begins. That's where our waiting begins, is when you hear Prince pronounced over you a word of forgiveness. Paul's words, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's what he's waiting on. He's waiting to hear the word of forgiveness pronounced over him. And we hear it through the cross and through the resurrection. It's in his word that I hope, waiting for Yahweh to speak that word of forgiveness, the word that you have heard. You know, I mentioned that there are parts of my life and yours that we just cannot seem to change. There's some, some brokenness. Tom Douglas is a songwriter, a songwriter in town, and you know how that works. Songwriters write songs that other people make famous. Tom Douglas wrote, wrote a song entitled, The House That Built Me. And it's a story in the song form of, of someone who comes by the home that they grew up in, the home that their childhood held, where, where everything was learned and everything was done and everything was felt and in the backyard and the front yard and the rooms inside and, and, the, and the child, now adult, driving by the house that built them begins to think about what would it look like to go into that home, to, to revisit. And the question is, do, do I park the car and go up to the front door and knock and ask to be admitted? There's a line in that song that's compelling. Well, many. Here's one. I thought if I could touch this place or feel it, some of the brokenness inside me might start healing. There's not a person here today who hasn't grown up through a childhood or an adolescence or adulthood with brokenness that needs healing. It's there. And the song is a, is a picture of, that works for us here today when we think about what does it look like to come into the presence of God and to hear a word of forgiveness pronounced over you. 
Because that's just when the brokenness inside of you and me does start to heal. When we hear that word pronounced, there's an inward, there's a, there's a word of forgiveness, and there is now a standing. Who can stand in your presence if you were to count iniquity? Well, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't hold your iniquities against you. He doesn't count those. And because he does, there's an assurance that you can stand in his presence. And he invites you into his presence. And he comes to you in your presence. He meets you where you are. And pronounces that word of forgiveness. And the healing begins. But it's not just inward. There's an upward dimension to this. Look at verse 4 again. With you, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. I'm not sure what that word does for you. It's, a, it's an Old Testament notion for sure. It's a New Testament notion. Martin Luther says all of this psalm gets at the very heart of the Christian faith. So there's a sense in which forgiveness and fear belong together. They are joined together. They're wedded. With you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. How does that work? Aren't we sons and daughters of the living God? We are. Fear has a lot of elements to it. But there's something at the heart of it. There's a dominant element. That's what Jerry Bridges called it. I found this helpful. Maybe you will. The fear of, there's a profound sense of awe toward God that is the dominant element in an attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of God. To fear God is to cherish. To fear God is to cherish an awesome sense of his greatness, grandeur, and excellence as these perfections are to us both in his word and in his works. The things that he has proclaimed, the things that he has accomplished, the things that he has done, said to you and done for you. That's where you find his greatness and his grandeur. Unless you've forgotten. You know, for some of us, <clears throat> that's a story that is familiar, so familiar. It's as familiar as the Christmas decorations that some of you just pulled out. Or will. It's just as familiar. And you know, that tree is just as hard to string as it was last year. And, and sometimes as we enter into an Advent season, we need to be stunned once again by grandeur and beauty and excellence. Would you join me there? <laughs> In that, this day, as we sing songs that are familiar, as we use words that are known, but as we step into this, there's an upwardness to it. You wouldn't know this unless you had a particular kind of translation, but in verse 3, uh, the, the word Lord is not Yahweh there. It's Yah. <laughs> The first syllable of Yahweh. It's actually a diminutive, it's called a diminutive of endearment. 
And as you enter into this, the, the one who is in, who we, in whom we have forgiveness and before whom we fear, there's a, there's a diminutive of endearment. Someone put it like this. Yahweh is at his most loving and most loved when the sinner comes to him for forgiveness. Yahweh is at his most loving and most loved when the sinner comes to him for forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. None fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. There's an inward aspect. There's an upward reverence and fear. I want to give you a couple of examples of what this waiting looks like. One obscure and one renowned. The obscure is Simeon in Luke 2. The only thing we know about Simeon is what we read in Luke 2. And we learn that he is a man in Jerusalem whose, na whose name was Simeon. And he was a righteous and devout man waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, we read in Luke 2. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What Psalm 130 was anticipating, Simeon held in his hands. The word of forgiveness pronounced over you is through him, through Christ, through his death and resurrection. That word of forgiveness, the mercy that the psalm points to, that's found in him. The forgiveness, the only forgiveness, it's in him. And Simeon shows us what that anticipation and that waiting looks like when the waiting arrives, when the waiting is ended. Simeon is pretty obscure. The Apostle Paul, pretty renowned. Paul once thought he understood Psalm 130. <laughs> he knew it by heart. He could do expository sermons on Psalm 130 and miss the point until he got the point. Until God broke through into his life like he has broken into your life or will one day soon. Breaking into your life to give you eyes to see what you cannot see until he does to understand what Psalm 130 is ultimately pointing to. Two events. An advent that we celebrate that we call Christmas. And another advent that is beyond the horizon. Unless it's tomorrow. An advent that cannot get here soon enough. 
When Paul began to understand what that was about, he wrote to a church and says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from whom we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was after the cross. That was after the resurrection. That was after salvation and our Savior's work on this earth. But from here, our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await what? Who? We await a Savior. A Savior who has begun a work of salvation in us. Theologians will talk about the fact that salvation has a past, a present, and a future orientation. The cross was about the past. Christ has paid for your sin. The sin that was yours, that you cry out, Lord, hear my prayer, hear my cry. I'm in the depths. I'm overwhelmed. I can't change. He hears that cry and pronounces over you a word of forgiveness because of the finished work of Christ. You know, there's an aspect in which Christ's work is unfinished. You can quote me on that. <laughs> we don't talk about it that way, but, but Christ's finished work on the cross accomplishes our salvation that we await. We await the readiness of the fullness of it. We, we want to be ready for the fullness of the redemption that is accomplished at the cross, that is applied to us by the Spirit that will become ours. John the Baptist, that we sang some of his words moments ago, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That was when Christ comes in, came into the world, the first advent. Behold the Lamb of God who, will, who takes away the sin of the world. But there, there are other words that you will hear one day. Behold the Lamb, behold the King, the one who was slain before the foundation of the world, who reigns and rules, and come, my child, my son, my daughter, to inherit the kingdom prepared for you. There's a pastness to it. There's a presentness to it that our hope is here, it's ours today, but there's a future. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, not only we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Spirit by faith, Galatians 5, he says, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait, like the watchman on the wall, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And in Romans 8, he put it like this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. We groan eagerly as we wait eagerly for what? For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is, a, there is more to come. Aren't we glad? There is more to come. Salvation has been accomplished, but there is more to come. And that's what we anticipate. That's what we eagerly await through this Advent season. The Christian world knows well the story of John Wesley, who was a missionary when he was converted one May evening in 1738 in a London meeting house, listening to a reading from Luther's preface to Romans. Converted, listening 
to the preface to a commentary on Romans. It's not as well known that in St. Paul's Cathedral that same afternoon, Wesley had heard and been deeply moved by Psalm 130. The cry of the psalmist was his cry. And the word of the apostle was God's answer. Words like these. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since there we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved. Much more shall we be saved by him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we will also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've received reconciliation, but there's a saving aspect that awaits. We will be saved by his life. We are saved by his resurrection. And he comes to you, friend, during this Advent season and says, look at me. Because the reality is, <clears throat> the God upon whom we wait is a God who waits on us. And he meets us in our waiting. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This Advent season, hear the word of forgiveness pronounced over you. And wait to hear. Receive the kingdom prepared for you. Father, would you do that work in us? Would you build into us such an attitude and a practice of waiting that, that the life we live this day and tomorrow is different? Oh Lord, would you help us take our eyes and our affections off the things of this world to know how to anticipate the reality and the fullness of our redemption? Would give us the kind of eager anticipation that we read about to keep our eyes peeled and our hearts focused on you and all that you are, all that you promised, all that awaits us. We thank you, Lord, for an inheritance that is ours, kept in heaven for us, and we being guarded by faith, shielded by faith, kept for that inheritance. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.